And here we are, the final episode of the Buckle Up podcast, the Millennials Guide to the BRI. As always, I'm your host, Enzo Kong. Throughout the series, we have talked to a lot of bright young minds from countries like Italy, Nepal, Albania, and more. But if there is one thing that's missing, it's a critique of the BRI from China's POV. Today, I'm so honored to have Yao Xiaolin here, who is a good friend of mine. Xiaolin is currently a PhD candidate in the School of International Studies at Peking University. He also has a bachelor degree at the China Foreign Affairs University and a graduate degree in NYU. His research focus covers a lot of topics ranging from the relationship between tech and international relations to great power politics. In our discussion, we evaluated the impact of the BRI domestically and globally eight years since its launch. We also deciphered the factors that are holding some of the BRI projects back and ways to tackle them. Finally, we looked at how BRI is going to evolve over time and what is up for grabs for the young people out there. Thank you for your support for the series. And for now, please enjoy the conversation. Hey, Xiaolin, good to see you. Welcome to the show. Hey, Enzo. Long time no see. Yeah, likewise. Now, um, the year is 2021. We are eight years into the BRI. Um, if you just look at the figures, actually, the BRI is hardly unsuccessful. Um, for example, until January this year, over 140 countries are now formally affiliated with the BRI, which accounts for 60% of the world's population and 30% of its economic output. Um, according to a World Bank study, um, the BRI transport projects could by 2030 help lift 7.6 million out of extreme poverty and 32 million people out of moderate poverty globally. Um, but of course, COVID has taken, taken a toll on some of the projects of BRI. As um, in last summer, China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs admitted that as much as 60% of the BRI projects have been impacted to some degree. Now, um, before we look at um, how the BRI is being perceived internationally, perhaps one way to um, evaluate it would be to see whether the domestic goals that are set out in the first place are achieved or not. So one of the most talked about goals for China would be to relieve its domestic industrial overcapacity as part of its supply side reform. Now, Xiaolin, can you tell us if you agree if you subscribe to the theory that the BRI is being used as a tool by China to export its industrial capacity, and if yes, um, to what extent has this goal been achieved? For me, I, I totally agree with, with your idea that uh, from the aim of China is dealing with its own industrial overcapacity, which can be unfolded as two aspects. First, the BRI is a way to avoid the involution of domestic infrastructure capacity. I think it is a common law that if you want to stop the domestic involution, you will have to encourage them to go outward to the global market, right? And secondly, China as the so-called world factory have abundant productivity to meet or even surpass the need of global market. So China needs more market to have trade with, right? So to create more market, China wants more countries to get rich, which uh, um, so that they would make trade with China. And there are many countries want to develop, want to upgrade uh, 
the life standard of their people. And then China proposed the BRI as the path of common prosperity. So I think one thing worth to be noticed is that BRI's logic is in line of the whole framework of how China has been developing itself. Like an old Chinese saying goes, 要想富, which means that if you want to get rich, you have to build a road first. Right. So this idea also conforms to how the international enterprises decide their investment and trade. Like how would they value the commercial elements in which a very crucial factor would be the conveniences of the traffic, which means lower cost and faster speed of cargo transportation and um, closer ties to the global product chain, right? So uh, therefore, we see a win-win here between China and other developing countries. Exactly. Yeah. That they have a great lack of infrastructure, no matter capital or the needed technology of, infra of infrastructure construction. And China has the need and the ability to help them with their domestic infrastructure. So therefore, BRI, which would greatly benefit the boost of their economy and uh, furthermore, their ability to participate with global trade and China would benefit from the from solving its own overcapacity of infrastructure and goods. So it is a win-win. Now, the other domestic goal that is often talked about and which also appears on official statements a lot would be the internationalization of the renminbi. Now, Xiaolin, can you tell us when we are talking about the internationalization of a currency, what should we be looking at? Um, is China um, setting up a lot of RMB clearing banks in overseas? Um, has it been signing a lot of currency swap agreements with other countries? I mean, how do we exactly assess um, whether this goal has been achieved? Yeah, I, I agree with their idea that it is a tool to uh, tool for the internationalization of RMB. Like now in Chinese policymaking circle, it is a consensus that the initial steps of internationalization of RMB is the surrounding usage of, of it, then the regionalization of it, right? Mm -hmm. so, uh, so the countries along the road are facing huge investment and financing needs in future in infrastructure construction and energy cooperation and uh, um, industrial investment. So this process creates a broad space for the cir circulation and use of RMB in the countries along the roads and is conducive to the promotions of RMB's international status. Therefore, BRI is creating a vast market need and developing platform for the internationalization of RMB. But for me, I think the, uh, the more transformative undergoing trend is the Publication, uh, publication of digital RMB. Mm -hmm. Once it is established, a single Chinese government-backed app of bank transferring will circumvent the whole system of, of SWIFT, which seems to be a global universal system, but actually firmly controlled by the US government, which therefore means a systemic risk for the foreign trades of China and other countries. Now, um if, if you look at the current figures, RMB actually accounts for only 1% of the allocated foreign exchange reserves around the world and 2% of global, pay, global payments. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot, but we can also look at the fact that around 60 countries now hold RMB reserves. 
and uh, People's Bank of China has signed bilateral currency swap agreements with 32 countries already. So I, I believe this, these numbers are just going up year by year. Is that right? Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. And you've also talked about um, the geopolitical benefits of um, the internationalization of RMB, in particular against um, the US dominant position in the financial market and the clearing procedures over the years. Now, um, I guess it's time for us to move on to the international side. So mm -hmm. we must not pretend that the BRI is not under a lot of um, attention or even scrutiny by foreign media and politicians. And one of the most heated criticism would be the so-called debt trap diplomacy. And um, um, the most popular example would be the port of Hambantota in Sri Lanka. Um, as the story goes, Beijing pushed Sri Lanka into borrowing money from Chinese banks to pay for the port project, which had no prospect of commercial success. Onerous terms and feeble revenues eventually pushed Sri Lanka into default, at which point Beijing demanded the port as collateral, forcing the Sri Lankan government to surrender control to a Chinese firm. Now, Xiaolin, um, do you think that um, the so-called that trap diplomacy is merely a myth or is there some truth in it? Yeah, uh, so for me, I think the idea of the so-called that trap diplomacy is a rumor for real. Mm -hmm. Here I'm calling an article published in the uh, in the Diplomat, which is very popular and, 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 and yeah, very popular in the in the Western media. So uh, it said that the Hambantota port deal cannot be interpreted as a debt equity swap or the Chinese canceling debts in exchange for control of the port. Although that seems to be the uh, well 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 established narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So actually a 70% stake of the port was leased to a Chinese enterprise, which is called CM Port for 99 years for 1.12 billion, as we heard. Actually this 1.12 billion, however, was not used to pay off the debt obtained to con construct the port. This significant dollar inflow was used to strengthen the country's foreign reserves and make some short-term foreign debt repayments. Repayments to other other creditors, you mean? Uh, yeah, a, a repayments to yeah. uh, Western countries like the US. Right. Yeah. Okay. So a common and popular myth is that Sri Lanka was unable to pay off the loan obtained to construct the port, thus it was handed over to China. Mm -hmm. However, by the time the Sri Lankan government entered into the agreements with CM Port to lease Hematota Port, the debt servicing cost pertaining to the loans obtained from China Exim Bank to construct the port did not amount to much. Those loan installments amounted to less than 5% of Sri Lanka's total foreign debt repayments. Therefore, this is indeed a rumor widely spread by some anti-China Western media to create a fear of China among other countries. But evidences are not just coming from China's side, but also from Sri Lankan government, other Western news or scholarly articles. For, for instance, Chatham House has dismissed the accusations of that trap diplomacy. And uh, Dr. Cody Tuwaku, who is Sri Lanka's ambassador in Beijing, rejected the discourse trap by saying that if China 
is forcing us to give it to us, then you can call it trap. But every penny we lend to China is our own request. And he said that the request for borrowing from abroad is based on the independent development of our government. Mm -hmm. The willingness of China and related institutions is not is also out of goodwill. Well, I guess that's that raised a significant point is that um, the port is actually to the country's advantage in the first place because they need it. They, they need to improve its connectivity, they need to do business with um, the region, regional partners. So it cannot be said that um, this is just a trap because they're getting something out of it. And yeah. just for the record, um, Sri Lanka was actually owing more to Japan, the World Bank, and the Asian Development Bank at that moment than to China. So it would be indeed a little bit far-fetched to say that China is the source of Sri Lanka's financial distress. Yeah, and, that, and, that, and that, uh, that's the truth that the, the Western media won't tell their people, right? <laughs> right. So yeah, it's good that you mentioned the Chatham House report and we'll, we'll put it in the description box for the audience to, to read further. Now, um, now, despite the, the rumors or the myth of that debt trap diplomacy, which might not be true at all, um, the fact is that some of the BRI projects have been stalling or have been seeing some failures on the ground mm -hmm. due to a variety of local or management issues. And I'll give some examples. Um, for example, if we look at uh, Nepal, which we have covered in a previous episode, um, the construction of the Trans-Himalayan Railway linking Karung in southern, southern Tibet and Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal, has been stored due to the technical challenges because of the geological challenges and the unknown financial arrangements. Um, sometimes, even if the deal goes through, um, the investment would not stick due to some of the operational issues. And that is the case of Albania, which we have covered too. So in Albania, the acquisition of the concessionary rights to the Tirana International Airport by a Chinese company was cut short due to the repeated security failures and legal issues. So uh, Xiaolin, can you tell us if Chinese companies are um, learning from the mistakes here and um, what, what are the implications of these failures? Yeah, okay. Um, well, I'm not really familiar with the case of like Albania, but mm -hmm. but I can tell you something about the China-Nepal railway. Of course. So for me, I think that this project is a win-win situation for China and Nepal. Like Nepal has a very rich oil and mineral resources. However, the country's industrialization level is very low and infrastructure construction is very weak, which has led to, uh, to a very poor... Uh, economy right mm -hmm. so the development of nepal requires a railway that can lead to the world and the construction of this railway means that we have to directly penetrate the himalayas and lay railways tunnels in the mountains right yeah so it's sounds, it be sounds very, very difficult yeah it, <laughs> penetrate it, it the himalaya <laughs> yeah it's the most difficult railway in the whole world right its elevation drop will be around three kilometers wow mm -hmm. So the only country currently able to achieve this project is, the, so. uh, is, is China, right? It's China. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's so-called uh, infrastructure holic, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, which has the world's strongest infrastructure construction capability and technology. And 
the technology required by China Nepal Railway is quite the same as as it by Chinese domestic railway, the Sichuan Tibet Railway, because the geography is quite the same. Right. So yeah, I guess um, we must not forget that it's it might be the first, second, or only the third time for a lot of Chinese companies going outside and invest. So I'm sure they need to learn some lessons, learn from their mistakes, and I'm sure things will. Um, get better as 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 time progress. Now, um, maybe a more important issue um, that is um, affecting the promotion of the BRI is the is the backdrop of the intensifying U.S.-China strategic competition or tensions, yeah, whatever you call it. Now, um, if if you want a concrete example, the Australian government has already overridden the Victorian state government's deal to join. The BRI in April, saying it was a first to their national interest. In my view, it's quite sad that the economic interests of Australia have been kidnapped by its own political anti-Chinese fervor. Like when China accused Australia that Australian soldiers killing civilians in Afghanistan, which was exposed by Australia's own intelligence agency. Right. And then the PM of Australia was furious and said China is humiliating Australian country and Australian military. Hmm. Well, we would rather say that the ones humiliating Australia are their own soldiers, right? Mm -hmm. So another thing that would be really hilarious is that after China stopped importing Australian coal, a large number of American coal took the chance and entered, entered China. Well, Australian uh, well, Australia has played the role as the anti-China pioneer for the Anglo-Saxon Five Eyes, but its American master seemed not so sorry for Australia's economic loss, but instead seized the opportunity. How true the U.S. is. So you're saying that U.S. is actually um, gaining ground in terms of the exports um, due to the fact that the um, the Australian exporters can no longer do business with China due to the um, restrictions. Yeah, yeah. Apart from the actions from the individual countries, we are also seeing that the G7 countries are coming together and announced that um, they are doing this Build Back Better World or B3W initiative back in June, which is a grand infrastructure plan targeting low and middle income in, uh, countries and seen by many as the West's answer to the BRI. Do you think um, the B3W is a real threat for the BRI? Um, is it capable of rivaling our projects? Well, I think the biggest difference between BRI and the B3W is the original logic that China is building the BRI for common development. But the U.S. is building the B3W to contain China, right? To compete with China. So the content of B3W is closely related to competitive issues such as like uh, ideology, standards, trade, and security. So it is not only has a strong political meaning, but also always hence the leading position of the U.S. in advancing the initiative. So. And um, from a feasibility point of view, there is almost no uh, high-speed rail in the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. And how can it be said that it will provide infrastructure for the whole world? I mean, the total length of China's high-speed railways accounts for like two-thirds of the world's total. And on the list of the 
top 10 long, longest bridges in the world, six of them were built in mainland China, while the US has only two. So in terms of infra infrastructure construction capabilities, I think the US and China are not very far apart. Before we um, come to an end, we must talk about the young people and the opportunities they've been getting from the BRI. So uh, Xiaolin, you have been in picking you for several years. From your point of view, from your observations, what are the um, students from the BRI countries have been getting um, um, in, in, in China? Uh, for the reasons why they are coming to China, I think, so firstly, they are, they're trying to do business with China. Uh, and, and, and as we see that now uh, they're having, having a better and better economic opportunity to trade with China. So the, perhaps the second reason would be uh, learning Chinese culture. But yeah, I, I think more, uh, more, more reasons for them would be doing business. Mm -hmm. so, and and where, which countries are these students coming from? Is it South, think, Southeast Asia or Eastern Europe or even Africa? Have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, I think now, like mostly uh, uh, the third, third world country. And mm -hmm. as, for, as for the students from, from the West, I think mm -hmm. they are coming to China mostly for learning Chinese culture or, or yeah, like, like doing business. But, but I think that there will be more uh, pro culture, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so for the third world uh, countries, I think many of them are coming to China to learn the China's ex uh, experiences of development. So um, I, I think the, the greatest feature of the, uh, of the essential students in Peking University is that uh, they have a strong sense of national mission. Like many people are coming from official families in their own countries. Mm, like wow. they have a strong sense of national pride. When they come to China, um, they pay attention to learning from China's development experiences and always think about how to use the, these experiences to their own country for, for their own development of their own country, right? So I think uh, to a certain extent, the diligence and, and uh, the, the diligence in central students what represents the bright future of their country. Mm -hmm. So do you have any recommendations to um, further engage these students? Um, or do you have any advice for the, for the young people who are looking for opportunities out there? Okay, so uh, I think, so firstly, um, I would encourage them to know more about the world rather than the knowledge of your own country. Like, mm -hmm. because you have already have enough knowledge of your own country. But now is the era of globalization. So the world is evolving very rapidly. So we all need to pay more attention to uh, what is going on in the whole world and understand uh, the news from elsewhere, right? So secondly, um, I think we need to learn the skills needed in the future rather than needed in the present. Like many skills are being eliminated in this information age, such as um, driving and delivering express, right? So if you still need to do these uh, simple tasks to, to make our ends meet, it's okay, but uh, keep my uh, work in mind. So thirdly, I think uh, perhaps learn Chinese, right? Um, this may give you more advantages in the 
construction of the BRI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's all. Now, before we leave, I guess um, some people have also been talking about the evolution of the BRI. So it seems um, to me that China has been winding down its new investment into traditional capital-intensive infrastructure. Um, it has been refocusing on public health, especially the vaccines, um, green technology, digital services, and that's why we have the terms um, the health Silk Road, the green Silk Road, and the digital Silk Road. Um, it also seems that China has been more focused on trade than on investment um, than before. So can you tell us um, if these are really happening and where will they bring the BRI to? Okay, so, so I think actually uh, the change of the BRI is along with the different stages of development of all these countries. I, I think for me, I, I would take it into uh, three, uh, uh, three, three stages. Like at, the, uh, like, uh, at first, uh, the, uh, these countries need more infrastructure cons construction to, to start uh, its ability to get involved in the world trade. So, uh, so secondly, it would uh, do more trade with, uh, with, 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 the, with the whole globe. So, uh, so, so China is more focusing on the trade side mm -hmm. rather than investment. So at the highest level, uh, when when your country is, is getting rich, then you are focusing more on like public health, green technology, right. on these more advanced uh, aspects. Like so, so, so BRI is having the health silk world, the green silk world. So, so, I, so I think the change of or or perhaps now um, we 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 cannot say there there's a really a change of BRI, but BRI is. Uh, focusing more aspects for uh, and providing more suggestions, more suggestions, more op, op, uh, more options for different countries. Well, it's good talking to you today, Xiaolin. Thank you for coming to the show. Thank you too. Thank you for inviting me. See you. See you. Bye. The past few weeks have been nothing but a blast. I want to thank you all and my most amazing guests for making this show extraordinary. Now, if I were to sum up what I've learned from this show, I would just share three key takeaways. First, the BRI is a project far from complete. Even with the grand vision and the top-level directives, we've seen that a lot of projects are still some way off operation due to a handful of factors such as financing difficulties, um, technical and ecological challenges, um, compliance issues, operational issues, local sentiments, etc. Second, it is precisely because of the presence of these challenges there is more work to be done, which means more opportunities are for grabs. Talents who can come up with innovative financing arrangements, um, who can bridge the cultural differences, who can draft laws and standards which bring certainty to the table, need not worry about finding a job. Finally, given the dynamic and unprecedented nature of these challenges, we, the youngins, are in the best position to take them up. It is up to you and me to help the BRI make ground during this post-COVID digital era. So I hope conversations like this will never stop because there is never too much we can learn from each other. Goodbye.